You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of the show where we take a wander around the week in Apple, Apple News, Reviews, Technology, Associated Products and all sorts of other things that catch our eye. This is another episode of the Essential Apple Podcast. Hello everybody and welcome to this very special extra edition of the podcast. I am delighted and honoured to say that today I have the company of Tim Baharin of Creative Strategies and Tech Pinions, both the site and the podcast. Tim is recognised as one of the leading industry consultants, analysts and futurists covering the field of personal computers and consumer technology. His writing and analysis has been on the forefront of the digital revolution and he was one of the first analysts to cover the personal computer industry. He has been credited with predicting the desktop publishing revolution and also multimedia. He is considered to be one of the leading experts in the field of technology adoption life cycles. He has been with Creative Strategies, a business analysis company since 1981, and he has served as a consultant to almost all of the leading hardware and software vendors in the industry. So, without any further ado, let's get on with it and go over and speak to Tim. Hello, listeners. I have with me today the uh, fabled, should I say, Tim Baharin of Creative Strategies and uh, Tech Pinions. And uh, he is here to talk to me today. So, welcome to the show, Tim. I'm glad I could be with you. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, Well... As luck would have it, <laughs> because this wasn't planned at all, Apple had their uh, event yesterday. But uh, before we get to that, I, I thought I'd just uh, ask you a, a couple of questions for the listeners. Um, would you like to tell us a bit about your history and how you uh, got into being a business analyst? Yeah, I actually joined Creative Strategies in 1981. And initially, I was covering uh, mini computers. Uh, about that time, IBM introduced the original IBM PC, and all of a sudden, the shift turned a little bit to more towards personal computers, and I just happened to be one in the company who understood the computing landscape better than most of my other colleagues, and they asked if I would cover the PC industry. I had already been covering Apple uh, through another uh, job before I came here. So I actually started covering Apple as early as 1979, I think it was. But when I got handed the job of a PC analyst, which by the way, in 1981, there were no PC analysts. It was <laughs> basically me um, and uh, two other guys, actually, uh, a guy in Boston who also came out of the mini computer side and a woman uh, that also came out of the mini computer side as well. And we basically got shifted to PCs. At the time, of course, we had no idea that the IBM PC was going to be a massive hit. But because it started taking aim at businesses, which is where we've been covering with the mini computers, um, we ended up with that kind of responsibility. Uh, over the years, I became one of the, the top analysts covering the PC industry. And because I've actually covered Apple from 
from almost the beginning, 78, 79, I'm the longest running analyst that's still working today that has covered Apple during its entire uh, existence. Yeah, excellent. And um, I I know um, a lot of my listeners are, are never quite sure exactly what analysts, uh, you know, do. There are a lot of people, of course, who um, you'll find around the web who, you know, call themselves analysts of various types. And some of them are probably, uh, you probably look down on some of them and uh, maybe consider some of them to be your peers. But uh, could you explain maybe for the listeners exactly what uh, an analyst does? Right. There's actually two types of analysts covering the business world. One is financial analysts, which I am not. The financial analysts work for the Goldman Sachs and the others whose responsibility is to track a company and then either make buy or sell recommendations. Um, we are, or I am, and my colleagues that are professional in this area, such as the guys from Gartner and IDC and others, are focused on what we call industry analysis. What we're more interested in is not the money side, but the industry impact side. Granted, the money is always a part of the story, but our interest really is more on what the products they're going to introduce, the impact their products will have on the market, the impact the products will have on competitors. And uh, <clears throat> you're right, there are a lot of people who call themselves analysts, and some of them are actually pretty good that are outside the professional sector. But the, the top analysts really come from the Gartners and uh, the IDCs and the Foresters and companies like ours who have been doing this for decades and and have a lot of research behind what we state, not just opinions. Okay. Oh, that, that's good. Um, I mean, so um, just to backtrack slightly. So, I mean, did you, you know, did you study um, business or, or, or whatever at, at college or university or is that how you moved into that field or did you just uh, uh, fall into it as many people no, uh, no i was actually a marketing major all right so we i was taught fund the fundamentals of the marketing side of things which as an industry analyst is actually very important uh i do though have a fairly gone good technical background i started out doing some little bit of programming in one of my first jobs but was shifted over to the marketing side pretty quickly because I had a I was more trained and inapt at the marketing side. All right. So uh, in many ways, then you you kind of ended up where you are by being in the right place at the right time, as so many of us it, do. It sure it sure seems that way because again, like I said, when I started up, there were no industry analysts, and the first PC that I really covered was the IBM PC, which caused me to do. You know, get a lot of notoriety in the sense that we were. I was one of the analysts that immediately they came to, to your commentary on the potential impact of the IBM PC. One other side note: over the years, I have uh, I am not a journalist by trade in any ways, but I have written for all, almost all of the major publications. In fact, for for uh, almost eighteen years, I wrote for um, Microscope, the dealer magazine in the UK. And then I wrote for PC, PCW for about 12 years and would come to England almost twice a year for about 20 years. And then I did some post-college uh, uh, study at Oxford. So I know the English side and, this, and, and really covered the English computing side quite a bit when I was uh, writing for the English publications. Yeah, very nice. Um, and... Uh... I don't want you to get yourself in any trouble here or, or anybody else, but um, without naming any names, uh, 
what is your take on the type of analysts, uh, quote unquote there, who, who like to cast predictions and prognostications about who's going to do what and when? Um, if you're, I don't know, my, I have my own views on that, but uh, what's your well, view? Well, I, t- I, I tend to, to only take seriously the analysts who have the industry, not only the industry knowledge, but the numbers, the research numbers to back up their prognostications. Too many of them are, um, too many of the analysts that claim to be analysts are uh, not coming from the professional side and are what I would call more opinionated analysts. Um, There's a big difference again, as I said, in our case, we do tons of surveys. We talk to hundreds of people uh, uh, on a monthly basis to determine what their interests are what they're buying, things of that nature. So I skew more to listening to um, the professional analyst than I do what I would call the opinionated analyst. But having said that, there are some very good opinionated analysts out there as well who have viable perspectives. Uh, I, I won't give any specifics there, but but again, I, I particularly look more for the numbers and the, and the research that goes behind a prognostication as opposed to someone that's shooting from the hip. Yes, I was going to say, on this show, we, we have a, um, shall we say, we take a rather dim view of the, you know, the quote unquote, again, analysts who like to say, people uh, familiar with the matter have told me X, Y, Z. And as a result of this, I'm going to predict, uh, you know, for example, uh, I don't know, you know, Apple will be producing an ARM Mac, uh, you know, driven. Uh, automated car within the next three years and we usually mock them mercilessly (laughs) (laughs) yeah well one of the things that i will tell you that the professional analysts are the ones who have access to the intels and the amds and the qualcomm's and the and the dells and the uh the uh, uh hps and the lenovo's we meet with them on consistent basis. And again, these are only coming from the professional side. And uh, having the, the ability to actually meet with the big companies who are making the news gives us a much deeper understanding of, of uh, not only what's happening, but fuels what we're able to state, at least on the publicly, because so much of it is done under NDA. But it, it really gives us what I would consider a bit more of a educated opinion when we speak yeah because um I, I i mean that's to me would be fairly obvious because you know the roadmaps for for these products um you know we know is is years long you know two three years out um so <laughs> these people who, who come out and say things uh like last year you know that Apple are struggling to get an under-glass fingerprint sensor into the uh, iPhone 8 or whatever, which is laughable because everybody with any knowledge, you know, we tend to say, well, you know, that the before they even tooled up, that would have had to have been finalised a good year in advance. Nobody's going to be trying to put a component in three months before launch date. That's just rubbish. No. In fact, if, if you look at Apple's history, for example, the original iPhone was actually started in 2002 uh, as, a, ironically, a tablet project and didn't even come out until 2007. Uh, the iPad was the interesting, the tablet concept that that eventually got shrunk to the iPad was in percolating as early as 2002 as well that didn't actually come to market until 2010 
So, you know, these long lead times are, are really significant. Nobody does things, you know, within six or 12 months, at least from the standpoint of, of groundbreaking technologies. That's in the works for quite a while. Yeah. I mean, uh, we we I think uh, you know most of my listeners are, are pretty aware of that sort of thing. It's uh, the kind of feedback we get is often along those lines. You know, when when people make these wild predictions, and uh, we tend to get a lot of emails uh, from our listeners saying things like, "Well, that's that's utter rubbish, isn't it? Just not yeah. not going to happen." Uh, right. Well, Tim, um, as I said, as luck would have it, yesterday, uh, completely by chance, as it happened. Uh, I seem to have secured your services a day after Apple's uh, event. So, yeah. Um, shall we? What you know? What was your take on uh, Apple's uh, announcements yesterday, and uh, also, you know, what they released, and perhaps almost as tellingly, from my point of view, what they didn't release. I was at the event. In fact, I flew home from Brooklyn last night, got in late, and got to, to do a couple of things. I got to, to, to get a fairly good understanding from talking to some of the top execs, what they were doing and how they were positioning both the new iPad and the MacBook Air. And of course I was, during the keynote, I was able to see um, the way Tim Cook specifically positioned things. And then afterwards we, we went out to this little area that they had where we got to do uh, hands-on. So I got to play with the original Mac, the new MacBook Airs, the new iPads, et cetera. A um, couple of thoughts. There's no question in my, in my mind that the MacBook Air is an incredibly powerful update to the cur current MacBook Air line that was out there. You know, they had the Bionic chip and the sensor chips and the, you know, the fingerprint reader and uh, the T2 chip. I mean, I'm, Basically, that is, at the moment anyway, the, the most powerful, ultra-thin laptop we actually have on the market. And uh, if you were a fan of the MacBook Air, you will be thrilled with this new update. If you're looking for another a laptop that's thin and light, um, it becomes a pre pretty significant upgrade as, or update as well. Even though since the MacBook Air came out, you've got some pretty good models from the PC guys that are very similar. And they've kind of kept pace with that and innovated uh, and included touch, by the way, in, in a lot of the ones where Apple is still resisting the touchscreen. Now, having said that, one of the other things that, that is pretty interesting about that MacBook Air is the fact that um, the, in the new design, they really are taking aim at the whole concept of how a laptop should work in your everyday flow. And the one thing that is interesting about that is the MacBook now, which was actually underpowered in the first place, is somewhat of a stepchild compared to the MacBook Air. I'm not sure where the MacBook will play in the lineup. I think that the, the MacBook Air, the MacBook Pro, are the ones that are the, the, the key products in their line. And it will be interesting to see what Apple does with the MacBook Air in the future. The second thing that was interesting to me, and, and the, the new iPad Air is really very powerful in the sense of it being more of a computer-like tool as opposed to a tablet. In fact, you very seldom heard Tim Cook even mention the word tablet. He always lent towards apps and verbiage that says this is a computer. 
One of the things that struck me when I got to play with it is that this is closer to the original vision Steve had in 2010. Uh, and I was there when he introduced the, the, the new iPad. And he said that someday this may replace, actually, Steve was a little more forcefully said, someday this could replace a laptop. Now, I don't think the iPads of the past got us there. But the new iPad Pro 10 that has the new A12 Bionic, which, by the way, is, is fairly equal to Core i5s from Intel in most of the laptops that are out today and, and can actually beat them in some of the, the, the power tests, suggests that Apple is taking a very different shift with this. They're not trying to extend the tablet category. They rather are now saying that the iPad Pro could potentially be a replacement for your laptop. And that was significant. Then the third thing that, that was interesting to me, and, and when this hits the market, you guys have got to see this. The, the new iPad Pro 10, excuse me, went to up 11 inch, and then the larger iPad Pro went to 12.9 inch. When I held them side by side, I've got to tell you, the new design of the 12.9 is so significant and thinner and, and different in size that you hold them side by side and they don't look that much different. Whereas the 10.5 and the 13.1 iPad Pro was clearly very, very distinctly larger and very different in the way they look together. Mm. See, I, I mean, I, yes, I was very um, impressed with the, with the MacBook Air update. I think that's very much what everybody has been um, waiting for. And uh, I completely agree with you. I, I found the fact that they've now brought the MacBook Air sort of in line with the Pros, and yet they've left the MacBook alone. And um, from my point of view, I, from a marketing standpoint, I don't know how you feel about this. At the moment, it's a bit of a muddle because you have the somewhat underpowered, if very small and light, MacBook but that is actually still selling for more money than a basic air. And it seems yeah. to me that that they need a clearer strategy. I mean, I, uh, I, I, in fact, I sent a message to Ben, um, earlier today saying, really, I think they need a, a clear strategy of, uh, you know, um, entry level, probably the MacBook, um, you know, a standard level, which would probably now be the MacBook air. And then, you know, a pro, which, Apple to throw everything at it, Apple because the people who want those want as much tech as you can jam in, and they you know they're not afraid to pay a premium price. Um, and yes, you described the the MacBook there as a, a you know a bit of a stepchild. That's in fact exactly the phrase I used to Ben, which was um, you know I, I, this seems a bit of a red-headed stepchild at the moment because it needs either to come down in price or to be revved because. To me, I think from a consumer point of view, surely you would what you need is a, a ladder. You know, this is the absolute basic Mac, and then and, and there shouldn't really it shouldn't really be any overlap because it gets very messy, doesn't it? If the if the top of of one um you know if the top of one rung overlaps with another, then it it makes it difficult for consumers to to make a choice. What what is better, you know, a, a top spec uh, MacBook or a bottom spec Air. As a consumer, I'd like to see a clear ladder of, you know, maybe four models of MacBook and then maybe four models of Air and then four models, three or four models of 
of pro above that? I mean, what's what's your feeling about that? Well, in a sense, you do because of the, the configurations, right? Because you actually have so many different options as far as memory and and uh, hard drive and and even um, uh, the how the processor uh, is configured. Uh, but but I tend to agree. Like I said, I, the MacBook Air was not excuse me, the MacBook was not mentioned at all, and. I do think that it's languishing because number one, it was way underpowered in the first place. And I'm not sure at this stage, we, we know what Apple wants to do. Now you did mention one other interesting thing um, that, that uses the term entry level lower price. Um, I, when I got done looking at the overall price structure of what was introduced yesterday, it, it says to me that Apple has no real interest in lower priced products. And when it comes to either the MacBook or the iPad Pro, in fact, the uh, uh, the iPad, excuse me, the MacBook Air came out at a started point at eleven ninety nine, which was actually higher than I I kind of thought it might be. I thought it would be closer to maybe ten ninety nine, but Apple really believes that they put so much power in these things. That the price is worthy of, or excuse me, the, the product is worthy of the price. Now, I, I, I think Apple has a lot of thoughts themselves themselves about what they want to do with the the MacBook. It's just not clear to me if they want that to be lower price entry, uh, or they potentially because it is a different size and it is smaller, they power that up and make it another option, but not at a lower price. Just that. If you really want what we would call the lightest, thinnest laptop, then you would go to the MacBook. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I see where you're going with that. And by lower price, I didn't necessarily mean, um, strictly speaking, lowering the price into um, a lower category. You know, not so much as going to mid-range or budget. I, but to make it clear, if if you like, if you were going to keep it as a lower-powered device. That maybe it should, you know, maybe it would it would be clearer to consumers if that started at I don't nine 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 or ten fifty or whatever, so that it was well. Well, they could do that. I mean, one of the things they could do is they could also add the Bionic chip to it, and enhance uh, the screen a little bit, not going to Retina, but staying still staying at a high quality LCD, um, so giving it more power. And because it is a thinner, even thinner and lighter because it's smaller, you know, by dimension mm. than the MacBook Air, just offer it as an option for a smaller, as a smaller. Now, for years, I carried the MacBook Air with me. And then when the MacBook came out, I took the MacBook and used it only because it was actually smaller. Um, but again, it's underpowered was a problem. But but as a traveling laptop, when when I'm on the road, that serves my, 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 um, Needs well. When I'm in my office, I actually use a MacBook Pro tied to a 49-inch Dell uh, widescreen display, and I've got all the power in the screen real estate <laughs> you can imagine. <laughs> but uh, when you're on the road, that's a limitation. So that and the 12-inch to me was, to be honest with you, even pretty small. That's why I probably will shift up to the MacBook Air. Uh, and and part of this is I'm getting old, so my eyes are getting harder to see the screen. <laughs> yeah. But uh, the 12, excuse me, the, 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 the new 13.1 screen on the, on the MacBook Air will give me the kind of better real estate, which is why I most, most likely will upgrade to that 
as opposed to just staying with the Mac, MacBook. But having said that, I do believe there is a market for even lighter, thinner, smaller screen MacBook. Uh, but at the very least, for that to survive, I think Apple has to update the power of it. Yeah, I, I think so. Otherwise, really, as you were, as you know, shifting over to the to the iPads, if you're right. talking about very thin and light, and you know, for um, everyday usage, then you, you very much do seem, I think, to be moving into the into the area where, you know, an i an iPad, certainly an iPad Pro, would be able to replace something like the MacBook, and yeah, you know, especially if you, you know, if you then tie like like yourself you know you then tie that to having another machine um in the office or or you know for for other uses so um i i mean i very much did uh agree with steve when he first launched the ipad the very first ipad and and made the analogy of you know cars and trucks and i still very much feel that um in certain areas, people are not going to move and cannot really move away from their big screens, you know, their twin twin or triple screen setups or their 49-inch TVs like you're using uh, or monitors. Um, but for a lot of people, I really do think, a, you know, a, a well-powered uh, something, you know, iPad should be able to take care of all their needs. I mean, let's face it, an awful lot of people do probably 75% of their um of their work without thinking about it on their phones. Yeah. Now that's actually the the the, the more important analogy is that a lot of people are actually doing most what I would call most of their general computing on on a on a smartphone and then to move it up to the iPad is a very you know basically a, a very natural step. But but the the PC guys of course are going to scoff at the idea of the iPad ever taking over the the notebook space. And I think in the productivity side where you you are a knowledge worker and you're always on the go and doing spreadsheets and you know sales stuff, he they may be right in the sense that the laptop's never going to go away. But I do think that this new iPad, the way it's positioned going after notebooks over maybe the next 2 to 3 years as it gets even more power and more capabilities probably is going to um, uh, at least threaten some of the, the what we call thin and light laptops in the future. But it'll be interesting to see. You know, there was a chart that Apple showed um, that I just wrote about that's pretty interesting, where it showed that the iPads actually outsold every one of the PC companies on their individual sales over the last 12 years, I mean, 12 months. That was not an, a slide that was put in as an accident. That was strategically placed to let the PC guys know that Apple's coming after them. I was going to say, I, I thought that when I, when I saw it. I thought that's, that's not really there for, for me as a consumer. You know, it might be a little bit of, um, you know, braggadicio, I suppose. But um, I, I did think very much that that's... Uh, a signpost, you know, that's a, that's a look out, we're gunning for you kind of uh, oh, abso absolutely. flag, you know, we're running that flag up the pole and uh, telling you, you know, we're, we're setting sail, uh, you know, with all guns blazing. Um, Cause the other thing uh, talking about the, um, the tablet and you're saying like that, you know, the laptop will never go away completely. And I, I agree with that as well. I've argued several times with, with various people that, 
you know, desktops will not go away. Laptops will not go away. But I think they will very much become more and more a niche product. You know, I I mean, why did most people, you know, back in the 80s have a desktop PC at home? Why? Because they wanted to, you know, get onto the the, um, uh, burgeoning web. They wanted to explore the things that computing could do. But over time, a lot of people... um, I would look at a lot of people and they would have equipment and I would think you have stuff which is so overpowered and so overcapable for what you actually want to do with it. And that is where really I, I thought the smartphone came in. That was the real, uh, pulled the rug out from the PC market, really. Because what do most people want to do? They want to do their Facebook, their email. They want to browse the web. They want to buy stuff from Amazon. And you can do all that from your phone perfectly well. So I've I've thought for some time that the the market for laptops and desktops is going to shrink down to a very specific niche in the same way as the Mac Pro is a very, you know, specific niche that people like uh, video editors and audio editors and those sort of, you know, or people who do uh, complex uh, mathematical analysis or whatnot, you know. Uh, are into so yeah and i think i think that that again the next two to three years are going to be interesting to watch this because if apple first of all apple has one of the most incredible marketing machines of any of the pc companies out there they also have one of the strongest marketing budgets of any of the pc companies out there and if they tune up or turn up the noise on the role of the ipad replacing a laptop sometime in the next two to three years, which I think they plan to do, starting with this new iPad Pro and then advancing its features every year the next two years, I think it actually could eventually eat into some of the laptop market. But again, this is you know kind of our uh, um, research analysis because we've been tr- studying the, the growth of the PC market and, and especially the notebook market for decades. And... Uh, we, we can actually see the first crack, in a sense, of the tablets now having the kind of power to go head-to-head with at least some of the thin and lights. Yeah. Um, and as an offshoot of that, uh, Tim, uh, the tablet market, I mean, we, we keep mentioning tablets, but actually the tablet market as such appears to be like there is no tablet market. It would appear to me that we've got an iPad market. And then there's everything else, which mostly seems to consist of sort of small, cheap, almost disposable Android tablets that seem to be very popular, you know, in the in the East or the emerging markets where they are often used um, really as just content um, consumption devices. I mean, I understand in uh, a lot of the Far East, you can go out and, you know, you buy a memory card with a, you know, a load of films or TV programs or whatever. Right. And and so people are buying these, you know, really cheap $10, $20 Android tablets and using them as like mini TVs. But what's your perspective on why um, the Android tablets never really seem to make any um, real dent and yet Apple have managed to create a, a sustainable, if not at the moment, ubiquitous market for their tablets? Well, part of the problem with Android is the the, the, the fragmentation of the operating system itself. And all of the other, uh, most of the tablet mem- companies, including Amazon, for example, have their own version of it that only is tied to their small ecosystem, where Apple basically has created a single set of OS and OS upgrades 
and and all of the new services, whether it be music, movies, you name it, pictures especially, are tied to their overall uh, ecosystem of apps and services. You know, one of the problems in Android in general is that you could buy an Android app, but it may not work on the particular Android device you have based on the OS it has. So the fragmentation is what really has messed up the, the, the Android market, where Apple has con consistently had a single OS, a single UI, a single set of offerings that work with any one of their uh, iOS devices across the board. Yeah. All right. That, that's great because that is actually pretty much my that was my very much my personal take. I was just interested to see, you know, see how you your thoughts aligned with that. Um, yeah. And I know we're probably running out of time, Tim, because I'm sure you're very busy. But um, going going forward, um, you know, without uh, casting any auguries, as we were mocking people who cast too many auguries, um. What do you think the big areas that the tech industry and Apple in particular might be looking to uh, expand in hardware and software over the next, I don't know, sort of five to six years, four to five years? I don't know. Well, all of the PC and PC and most of the tech companies I deal with are heavily skewed toward things like uh, uh, augmented reality, virtual reality and AI. One thing to think about what's what's going on with VR and AR is that when you really think of what's what the fundamentals of it is, is it's actually just adding the basics of what I would call the next man to machine interface. You know, Apple introduced, I mean, Gates and his team introduced DOS in the early days, which was the textual interface. Then Steve brings in the Mac and gives us the graphical interface. And then most recently, we've been seeing things like, uh, and then by the graphics interface in the OS as well as the mouse. And then we've been seeing things like gestures and voice now all of a sudden being part of the man-machine interface. And with AR, that's exactly what's going to happen. You're going to end up with glasses tied to, in I think Apple's case, it'll be more tied to an iPhone that will use both voice and gestures as the way you navigate uh, around uh, the, that particular AR solution. Apple themselves is leading the charge on AR, and that's significant because they're not really pushing VR, whereas you've got a lot of the other PC companies trying to do the opposite, going with VR and not really doing much with AR. We actually think the mainstream technology will be more AR, where VR will be isolated to more like games and vertical markets. And Apple may lead the charge on that. So, so in that particular case, we think everybody's watching Apple's AR prowess and where they plan to go with it. it it's still a year, couple of years out before I think Apple does something with glasses. But they're on track to do something like that. Microsoft, of course, has already tried to do this, what they call the mixed reality with HoloLens. And then you've got the, the magic leap now that is out with a hollow, excuse me, a... Uh, it, it's, it's heavily skewed towards VR, but because you can see through it, it has some AR apps too. It's just ridiculously expensive. And I don't know if, if Magic Leap is going to get the software development support that, that somebody like Apple is going to do, since Apple's already had AR kit on the market for almost two years now. Yeah. But, but I think that the industry's next big step will be to enhancing the, 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 the user interface of man-machine interface around voice, which they're already doing with all the voice controls, 
And then, then when you move to the glasses, gestures becomes very, very critical. And, and then who, know, who knows what's after that? I mean, you know, there's work going on on brain transfer info to control stuff, right? There's been some uh, fabulous. We've covered some stories on on the podcast in the past. Um, there's some fabulous work going on um, with you know brain interfaces, uh, particularly in you know in respect of things like prosthetics um, and you know for accessibility and helping the disabled. But of course, with everything we know, those you know they they can be very specialised um, clumps of research. But those things, once they become established, they they leak out, don't they? You know, they they, they do. They, it doesn't matter why somebody develops, um, you know, a neural interface. Obviously, for somebody with a missing limb or or, or whatever, that that's a, a very specialist purpose. But once you've developed that and you can make it work and it's reliable, then eventually that technology just leaks out into the into the general sphere and and once you can go okay we don't actually have to sink wires into your skull but we can do it by you know sticking it on some sticky sensor pads then who knows you know i know people have been messing around with kind of um you know neural or you know feedback type interfaces for years so uh, yeah. that's a i'm pretty sure in the longer term that will be um something but i think we're probably looking 10 to 20 years out for that absolutely absolutely yeah i like i said i think the next big step will be the continuing of refining the voice interface then the once the glasses come out the gestures will be added to it and again that that whole process is still another three to five years out by itself for it to become mainstream but when you ask that question of what, what is the next big thing uh, and where, is, where the industry is going, I think that that's kind of the big the big news. One other little side note: uh, Samsung's going to introduce their first foldable phone uh, at the developers conference next week that I'll be at in San Francisco. Uh, and then you know they've gone on record stating this and showing a little, maybe even some early prototypes. Um, the 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 unit that they have. Uh, I consider it as a beta. I don't believe this is a legitimately ready for market product, uh, and and they've admitted that they're not going to even introduce it till next year sometime. But it will cause a lot of pressure on other companies uh, in the smartphone business to do and start looking at a foldable smartphone uh, because there is a little bit of a virtue with that in the sense that. You open it up. So in smartphone mode, it um, depending on how they d- design it, uh, you, you've at, actually got a normal 6.5-inch screen, let's say, or a 6.1 or 5.6 or whatever. You open it up, and it, it, it doesn't quite double it, actually, in, when you actually look at the diagonal. But it basically gives you close to double the screen size. Now, I'm not 100% sure that that's a valuable a solution for smartphones in the in the sense of giving you more real estate. The the new six point five Apple uh, or six whatever the six point five uh, iPhone ten uh, X S Max. The ten you know to me to me is 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 a significant amount of real estate that I can at least get in my pocket. At the very least, when you go to a foldable, it's going to double the thickness of the phone. Uh, but having said that, I think all eyes are going to be on Samsung next week when they bring out this foldable, and it could put pressure on 
Apple and others to do something similar. Now we know probably at Mobile World Congress, Huawei and um, uh, at least one other Chinese company may bring out uh, a, and one Korean company may bring, uh, like LG might bring out a foldable one as well, just to test the market. We don't believe Apple is gonna be doing something in that space for at least another two years at the earliest, because like in in the past, Apple will never lead the charge. What they'll do is they'll watch to see how these products either hit hit a mainstream core or start looking at it, you know. And then they introduce their version over 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 the competition, and they basically eat the competition for lunch. <laughs> but but having said that, that's one other thing to watch, just because I think it's going to make a lot of noise next week after Samsung brings this out. I. My my take on that, because I've been following this kind of foldable screen um, technology slash story for, for a couple of years now. Um, I, I, in fact, I've been following it ever since I, I saw a thing where some, uh, I think it was Cambridge, probably five or six years ago, where they'd, they'd uh, made a, a rollable LCD. I mean, this was not a product. It was a, it was a concept, but it, it was like in a in a canister and you could pull it out like a roller blind um, and, you know, like that probably to the size, well, probably to the size of what is now considered a, a, a plus size uh, smartphone. But um, my take on it, at least originally, I would think is if you if you're going to um, create a foldable um, OLED or LCD type screen, I would I would think, uh, I mean, showing it off in a smartphone, I, I think that's going to be uh, have a certain amount of uh, cachet. But I suspect its real um, application would be in in devices like an iPad, because if you had a if you had a foldable iPad, then you're sort of opening up the ability to have, you know, a really quite large uh, tablet, you know, beyond thirteen inches up into the sort of eighteen inch thing, and and yet still fold it down to the size of a of a say a 10 inch ipad at, to, so that you could put it in your briefcase without too much difficulty yeah no i know like i said but i just wanted to point out that that's another segment that we're, we're watching closely from the standpoint of development whether it it hits and strikes a a, a need i don't know but uh, uh it'll be fun to watch yeah i, I think very much it's sometimes you uh, i i you know, when I'm following these things, obviously I'm not a professional like you, but I, I follow out of interest. And there are some things I see and I think I can see why people are working on this. I can see why people are interested in it. But sometimes people can get wrapped up in the following something just because it's cool. And it's like, does it actually have any real application? Whereas um, when the iPad launched, I mean, there was the tech press was full of people poo pooing it, saying it was rubbish. And I I remember uh, putting a post somewhere saying all these people in the tech press who are poo-pooing the iPad uh, are going to have egg on their face because Apple are going to sell boatloads of them because the, the people in the tech press poo-pooing them are not the market. You know, my mother is the market for the iPad, right. the original right. iPad. You know, my father is the market for the iPad because he doesn't really want a, um, a full-blown laptop. He doesn't understand you know, maintaining a laptop, he doesn't need the overhead and the complexity. He wants to be able to t press on something, see his email, type, 
you know, send it. So, and I was right on that. You know, all the naysayers were wrong. So uh, one to me. <laughs> but um and yes the foldable screens i think very much interesting to watch um could be i think it could be a really interesting technology if if the market you know if the consumers find that it's it's of use otherwise it i think it will just fizzle away a bit like 3d tv right i, I agree that's what i said it's going to be more interesting to watch what happens right well thank you very much for your time tim i know you're a busy man so um, if you would just like to tell the uh, listeners, if you would, where they can uh, find your work and insight um, on, you know, on the web or wherever, and uh, then I'll, I'll let you get off. Sure. Now, our main site is called TechPinions, T-E-C-H-P-I-N-I-O-N-S.com. And that's where I'll post every Monday in the main section. And then on Wednesday, I do a piece for our insiders, which is a subscription service. It's only about 100 a year, but it's pretty significant because it gives you a lot of information. And then I also write to PC Magazine, and I do pieces for Smart Company often, or excuse me, Fast Company, and uh, a couple other publications. But those are the main ones. All right. That's fabulous. And, of course, you can also be found over at uh, creativestrategies.com. Yes, thank you. I, of course, am on the Twitter as at Serenak, and that's S-E-R-E-N-A-K. The show occasionally puts out tweets uh, as Essential Apple, and all our stuff is over at EssentialApple.com. Well, Tim, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, It's been a fabulous honour to have you on our show. So uh, thank you so very much, and uh, I hope you have a great uh, rest of the week. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Essential Apple Podcast. And I'd like to say, if you enjoy the show and would like to support us, feel free to go over to the website essentialapple.com and you will find links to both Patreon and the Pinecast Tips Jar, where you can make a donation towards the costs of the show. Uh, Or even if you're really keen, you could set up a recurring payment. And thank you very, very much to all the people who already do support us. We really do appreciate you very much indeed. This show is, of course, part of the My Mac Podcasting Network, where you can find a variety of other shows like the My Mac Podcast with Guy and Gaz, the G-Men, Tech Fan with Tim and David, the Nintendo Club podcast, the geekiest show ever, the Three Geeky Ladies, uh, Bart Bouchotts and his wonderful Let's Talk Apple, and possibly some more that I forgot. So why not go over to mymac.com, take a look at the available podcast, and take a listen. Everybody, please stand by to stand by. And, uh, well, we'll be right back. And welcome, everyone, back to the MyMac.com podcast. All right, so, so, so let's, um, let's carry on. But I'm still laughing about something that happened just before we started recording. And we're going to talk about that right now. I don't know if you, you heard, Guy, but Sal, <laughs> Sal Segoin, did you know that? Yeah, I heard that. He's leaving Apple. It's a tragedy for everybody. (laughs) Oh, dear.
this is not going well, is it? That we are so childish. We, we are. really are. It's the G-Men on the MyMac.com podcast. Essential Apple Podcast. Goodbye and thank you for listening.